Hello, it's Emily, the host and creator of the Modern Romantic Podcast. I just wanted to interrupt really quickly to say thank you so much for your support. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the likes and comments and follows. Thank you for sharing with your friends and family and fellow artists. And your positive reviews on podcast platforms are not lost on us. We see every one. So we appreciate you and thank you again for joining us. Hello, and welcome to the Modern Romantic Podcast, where we celebrate and inspire romanticism through passionate people doing incredible things. Hi, I'm calling about the weird music I'm hearing coming from the graveyard. Oh, that's Mozart decomposing. Got it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Trey. And I'm joined by my co-host, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi. I'm not decomposing. I have already decomposed. I am now reanimated, and I am now undead. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So this is the reprise of Emily. <laughs> the what? I'm sorry. The reprise. The reprise. Yes, correct. I'm back. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Emily, uh, with these puns that I intentionally started ahead of schedule, uh, would you do this the honor of introducing our guest tonight? Absolutely. Um, I am super excited to talk to Dee Riley Nicholson, who is an exceptionally talented composer and musician. Thank you, Riley, for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I saw that I was really curious about from your bio is that you not only have a master's um, in music, you also have a bachelor's, but it's not in music. Um, how did you go from psychology to composition? Well, you're mostly correct. So yes, oh. I have a psychology undergrad degree, and then I also got a, a bachelor's in music performance. So I did a, a I did two, um, which um, I actually combined uh, and studied social performance or sorry, music performance anxiety um, uh, under the uh, Dr. Beck, she ran the trauma and anxiety lab at the University of Memphis. Um, and anyway, kind of neither here nor there, but I, I became this close in a different world, I'd be a therapist. And then I decided to um, actually neither go into psychology nor performance and uh, go to grad school for composition uh, because I found that um, I'd rather write the music than play the music. Although I do <laughs> play the music sometimes, but. So what were some of your findings when it came to uh, things like performance anxiety or some of the most interesting things that you found? Yeah, well, so specifically that study um, was uh, in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual at the time. It's, it's been a long time. So who knows if things have changed. I've been out of that world for a long time. Mm. Uh, at the time, music performance anxiety was listed underneath uh, as sort of like under the umbrella of social anxiety. Hmm. Uh, and there hmm. were a growing um, SAD, standing for social anxiety disorder. Um, they could, probably should think of a better acronym. But <laughs> um, <laughs> Can't forget it. <laughs> but yeah, but then, you know, intuitively you think, really, is music performance anxiety and social anxiety the same thing? But, but you know, just even intuitively, that seems kind of problematic. And there were some... Um, and they were, there were some 
researchers specializing in music performance anxiety that, that had been questioning this for some time. Like, are these actually, you know, do they actually deserve to be together? Um, mm. And so my, you know, you in, you know, with peer review research, you never actually rarely, you know, just overnight disprove something with st one study. But, you know, it takes lots of things that all build up to, you know, change. So I had no grand ambitions of that, but that was the interest. And, and specifically what we found was that um, there are specific aspects of social anxiety um, that do really correlate really well with these performance mm -hmm. anxiety and others not so much. So that was specifically the fear of negative evaluation and something else that I don't remember because it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, so that, that was sort of what the study was, was sort of comparing measuring both things in a large group of musicians and um, running the numbers. But, and that's kind of why I found, uh, eventually decided not to go down either research and um, definitely not research. You know, I wasn't really a by the numbers kind of guy. Um, I, mm -hmm. I, I like interacting with people and being a little bit more on the ground, but it was certainly a great experience. Um, and I'm, you know, I think personally, and perhaps somewhat obliquely artistically uh it, you know i'm really glad i did psychology and it's kind of informed who i am and how i think about the world sure that's fascinating i didn't realize that like a sub diagnosis could be a music related social anxiety so when so if it... you have oh, lots ahead. of time on your hands you can re read the uh the, the diagnostic <laughs> manual <Yeah. laughs> So much fun. Yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> um, I am curious because you mentioned before that you are um, that you are either in transition or have become the, um, and I want to get this title correct, the executive director. Um, have you ever used any of those psychological techniques to <laughs> help conversations as you're managing other people? Uh, not trying to call you out. I'm just trying to say, <laughs> has that has that assisted in your uh, your uh, career at all? Yes, I'm shrinking and manipulating everyone. Um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> you yes too. No. I, <laughs> um, no, I mean, hey, you know, it's like undergrad psych degree is really just a intro into a little bit of everything in that in that world. Um, um, so let's preface it with that. Um, I would say, you know, no, I'm not psychoanalyzing everybody, but this, the, the role of an executive director in a nonprofit, um, is, um, such a people role. I, mm -hmm. I mean, you are, I kind of like to think of it sometimes as the heart almost instead of the head. Um, mm -hmm. and the art, all the main arteries are running through you. Um, so the board goes through the exec, that's, you're the board's contact, your staff's contact. You're in the case of an arts organization, uh, and a music organization, the music director and musician. So the community donors, um, you are the sort of connector, um, and you're having to code switch and talk to all of these very different, uh, constituencies and, and stakeholders. Um, and so managing people and being able to relate with people um it's a huge part of the job um so absolutely uh, you know having people skills um you, you really couldn't do this job without it 
not that I'm perfect, but yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, the psych degree did help me understand, does help me understand people a little bit better. Um, so, so yes, in sort of a, in a small way, but not in like an analytical way. <laughs> okay. There's more going for the joke, but thank you. I appreciate the clarity. <laughs> I appreciate the clarity. Do you, but you also compose and yes, that is um, obviously something you're clearly very talented at. I'm wondering what are some of your favorite types of pieces to compose? Sure. Um, you know, I've done such a, it's hard to choose a favorite, you know, cause every medium, every instrument, every ensemble has different strengths to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if I had to give you a, a distinct answer, strings and piano, I know that's terribly original, but it's hard to go wrong with strings and piano. Um, those, that instrumentation, either piano on its own or strings or both. Um, yeah, probably my favorite to write for. Um, but again, that being said, you know, every ensemble has, um, every instrument has, has its strengths and its drawbacks. Um, I've also done a lot with electronic music, um, not necessarily the music, <laughs> but more um, using it as a tool of abstraction um, and sort of, I guess you'd call it electroacoustic music. Uh, I've done quite a bit of that. And, you know, its drawback is that there's nothing like everything being live, you know, there's no match for that. But the real plus there is that it, it widens your palette so much. Um, and so I love that freedom. Um, so my, um, so a couple I've actually, and then that kind of happened accidentally, uh, almost, I didn't go out to be an electronic music composer, but just, um, I think I wrote one piece for switchboard music festival that, um, I think that was the first one. Yeah. Um, it was a little piece. We were, it was, it was sort of a walking music, um, concert if you will um and but it was location based so like when you would go to a particular place in town that music would play um and mm. my spot was uh well i chose van ness muni station um and so i um and so i actually chose i mean you know san francisco people will correct me and say there's no bart at van ness <laughs> But I use sounds of Bart for the primarily. Um, Bart actually stops at Civic Center, but either, anyway, either here or there, the sounds of the subway, um, and that was my palette. I, um, and of course, I pitched it up, pitched it down, did all kinds of things. But that was the piece. And then after that, you know, once you do one thing, sort of, you never know where that will go. And, and then I ended up doing other pieces. Um, I was actually just listening back to a piece today for. Uh, David Herrera Performance Company, uh, mm. dance company in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I wrote a piece for, um, I collaborated with my friend, the vocalist, and just gave her all kinds of crazy instructions to record. And then I used that as a sound library and then electronically put it all together. Um, anyway, so don't know where I was headed with all of that, but, but, but yeah, I, I guess my point was you can find, um, any medium, any instrument, any sort of situation, the limitations are helpful. And um, in terms of time, in terms of what palette you're given. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's, that's the fun of it. The one that I was 
that I was really impressed by. Um, and I was able to find the recording of the first movement from one. Um, I, from just an analytical perspective, the, the blurb about it, um, about one that you had really intrigued me. And it's 37 uh, stringed instruments all playing with their own individual lines. Um, and it's exploring the concept of being one in a sea of many, but also playing as one kind of unified concept. So it's kind of that, that dichotomy of having one against all versus all being the concept of one. And um, even the first movement itself, I could hear it throughout the music itself. And so that very long-winded uh, way of transitioning, <laughs> the one thing I have to, to ask about that is when you're writing for something like those stringed instruments, what was kind of running through your head with that particular piece? Um, how did you account for 37 individual instruments? Yeah, so in this, I'm trying to think that was, a, a, the process was, um, sort of two big pieces of inspiration. The first piece of it was conceptual. Um, so a uh, long, long time ago, um, my, I, was, I was still a student and, and really I was still a student then too. Um, that was, I think my second year of grad school. Um, and sort of one of the first pieces, one of the first pieces that I claim, <laughs> still claim today. Um, <laughs> some of them are buried, you know, with a hatchet. Uh, that should never be seen again. Um, but I'll still claim that one. It's, it's, it's all right. <laughs> um, but anyway, the uh, even before that, a couple years before that, when I was, I think, studying in college, my aunt is a violinist. Um, mm -hmm. And we were chatting and somehow it came up. And I, I said, you know, what, I think there was an audition or something. And I was like, well, are you auditioning for, she lives in Atlanta or did at the time. I was like, are you auditioning? Would you consider auditioning for the Atlanta Symphony? And she was like, no, I don't want to. Um, and she said, I have so many colleagues. Hopefully she doesn't call in and dispute how I'm quoting her, but she's like, I have so many colleagues that, you know, are in symphony orchestras and they're so focused on blending. Um, they're so focused on this unified this this one sound that they lose their own voice. They're they're a cog in this orchestral machine, and if they don't have chamber music and solo opportunities, that sometimes they get really burnt out. Um, and that was sort of, you know, now that's kind of in the industry. People know that like, well, burnout is common in every industry, but for string players, it's a real thing. Um, and I that sort of kind of blew my mind because I was like, oh, here I thought would at the time I thought this is this pinnacle of the of you know artistic success as a instrumentalist you wouldn't want to um you wouldn't want to even consider you know trying out for it and like no um so that just really struck me and, and then that idea stayed with me it's like i love symphony orchestras i love large ensembles um you know i um you know i'm literally leading have led and i'm leading um symphony orchestras um as a, as an executive um so i have a lot of love for it but, but that that really bothers me um and so there so i wanted to create a piece where that kind of 
I'm not saying it has the answers, but it at least kind of puts that question forefront. Like what if each of the um, instrumentalists on stage really had their own part and acted as if they were the soloists, but then we also had sections that were, you know, it's not mayhem all the time. There are sections where they're playing together and sections where they literally each have their own line and then everything in between. So that was the concept. Um, and, you know, I was really, really came from that conversation. Um, and then also I had a, I don't usually work this way, especially now, but I had a melody uh, in mind that was sort of my source material. Um, mm -hmm. And so I started there and then sort of spun it out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but um, essentially those were the two big things, the, the concept and then the melody that I had been working on that I'd sketched out um, just on pen and paper. Um, and, um, and that was the genesis. That is, that is such a cool concept. Mm -hmm. I do have a follow-up question. Um, and I think I got about, um, let's see, one of my favorite parts was about four minutes into it. And I really found myself stopping. I was, um, I was doing a little bit of cleanup and I just remember stopping and going, okay, th that part fits, but that part is like in direct contrast with this. And it was like one solo violin while this, uh, this other one, this other grouping of violins had this incredible, like seventh and ninth chords going on at the same time. And you had this kind of dissonant violin going on against it. And I was like, that is so cool and it scratched such a musical itch that i didn't know needed to be scratched so i just have to say thank you <laughs> um my follow-up question is did your aunt get to play in the premiere of this yes um she did actually um yeah it was an incredible moment she came out and played um, awesome Yay. yeah yeah, so I didn't just, uh, you know, use use her uh, as inspiration and then never tell her about it. Yeah, she actually flew out <laughs> and played in the orchestra. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was a really, really meaningful, really meaningful experience at many levels. Um, yeah. Like for me personally, as a composer, um, you know, that was sort of, that was my thesis uh, piece as a student. Um, so there were, there were lots of, uh, you know, pride points. That was also, it was also part of, um hot air music festival mm -hmm. um that's where it premiered um so that was really meaningful because that was it was also run by friends um it's a it's a new music festival that happens every year sfcm so yeah it was a wonderful experience that's, that's so awesome cool. yeah <laughs> <laughs> what a cool memory to share together too yes and then also um another level um uh, I guess a good um, sort of a predictor or something. Um, it was also my first fundraising project. <laughs> um, so I, I fundraised to, to pay with the orchestra. So it wasn't, it, it did include students, but um, I wanted it to be a paid gig so that they would really have the time and space um, and that I could also pull in some professional ensembles to lead it. Um, so I also got my fundraising chops <laughs> off, which helped as well. <laughs> that's that's a big part of i mean even if you're not a professional fundraiser that is part of being um an artist today is understanding how your works are going to you know get played and paid for and um so yeah that was a big project um and i, I was a little bit crazy for a grad student thinking that he was gonna you know raise 
um, so much money, but I, I, um, I guess I had the audacity to. <laughs> what an undertaking to do all that on top of it being the project it was. Yeah, well, I had a lot of friends and help and advisors and um, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a village. Yeah, well, and fundraising isn't easy even by itself. I don't feel it is anyway. Mm-mm. Right. So we do have a question from the chat and that is we need a theme song for when we raid castles. Do you do commissions? <laughs> <laughs> I do commissions. I think I need a little more context. <laughs> <laughs> valid. That is valid. <laughs> what castle are we raiding? <laughs> yeah. The- virtual I- real life. Yeah. I, mean, I, need, I need some more details. Um, you know, I want to make sure I'm not like, um, you know, all the castles. Wow, this sounds ambitious. Um. <laughs> um, so, the 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 whole story behind it is um, black. Back when we had uh, Jasmine Lafleur on our podcast, who is the one of the founders of Black Fay Day, uh, we started jokingly saying that we were going to take over a castle uh, and that we were going to make it like this whole big extravaganza. Uh, invite so many artists, creatives out to do photo shoots, music videos, fashion, really whatever you can possibly think of. So now we're thinking of like trying to have a theme song for it. I don't think that we've defined which castle we're trying to overtake. And I don't think we want to announce it. We just kind of want to (laughs) like show up and do it. It was, it was kind of like, we didn't know yet either, which castle, like we're kind of like, any castle will probably do really but yeah. <laughs> yeah and it was also back for the mark and elva rhinus episode that we came up with it too because it didn't really get serious yeah. until the jasmine one but then like cause was talking about horses and armor and because everybody had something to contribute cause makes armor for horses like every artist and every person that we were talking to at the time, like on the show and, you know, as part of our audience, everybody had something to input as far as talent. And it turned into this amazing idea. And we thought, oh, we should make this happen. It'll be like a little mini festival weekend and castle takeover. I have a counter proposal. Okay. It sounds like you don't need a theme song. You need like a fanfare by trumpets to like announce that you're about to attack. Oh, okay, okay. I like this. Functional here. <laughs> I'm open. Yeah. And trumpets because they're loud and you know uh, destructive. Right. <laughs> 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 uh, I do like this idea. Uh, cause war, uh, trumpets with bagpipes? Question mark. Those have are you, also very loud. <laughs> have you written for bagpipes? I have not. Oh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> I've also um, not heard trumpets with bagpipes before that I know of. So, no, that's a very tinny sound with a very. Mm, mm, I'm not sure. It. I think the closest thing for me would be like an oboe, almost, but like more, more so goose-like. Like <laughs> What'd you say, yeah. Riley? Like sixty of them. Sixty of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the more the merrier. <laughs> Yes. Um, <laughs> have you ever, on the topic of commissions, have you ever gotten a commission that made you just kind of at first just kind of cock your head and go, hmm, or 
Alternatively, what is the weirdest commission that you have ever received? Hmm. I shouldn't say weird. Not weirdest. I haven't done any, um, I mean, it's contemporary art, so. Maybe unusual? Um, But yeah, Yeah. sort of unusual for me was, um, I was sort of not weird at all, but unusual for me, uh, a friend of mine is a filmmaker um, and was working on a documentary um, Mm -hmm. for, it's sort of a funny story. So so he was working on a documentary about a sort of injustices in the justice system, um, specifically for youth and sort of the overuse of solitary confinement some really heavy issues that a nonprofit was paying him to put together a documentary. Um, so he hired me to do the music. Um, uh, and so again, like very heavy, dark material. So I, you know, started sending him like very heavy, dark music. <laughs> and he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And we had to kind of course correct because, you know, it was not a horror film. <laughs> it was a documentary. <laughs> so he was right. But in hindsight, I, I get it. But I was like, you know, I was responding to like, this is like overuse of, you know, solitary confinement and mental health issues mm-hmm. and substance abuse issues. And like, it was heavy. And so I was sort of responding to that. But then I kind of went a little too dark. <laughs> um, but we, I course corrected um, and he was happy. I was happy. It was uh, you know, it all worked out, but that was both unusual and, um, and I'm not really a film composer. So that was kind of new for me. Yeah. Um, and sort of, you know, I, I learned a lot. <laughs> That's really neat. I, I meant to ask you about film composing, but that you answered my question there. I think some of the, I'm personally inspired by film soundtracks and and things like that the things that set the mood the things that make um movies stand out from each other and and television shows even productions that you know like you hear the soundtrack to jurassic park and there's no question what enters your mind this is jurassic park for instance so and i feel that way about the emotions that are evoked by um by that art and yeah. I know there's definitely some of that with even composing, like the, the, uh, the, the one, I want to say the one of your work, one, um, when you're considering telling a story, you're still telling a story with music. So do, when you compose, how do I ask the question I'm thinking of? Trey, do you have a question? Because I'm going to think about this. Because I have it. Well, can it's I, just I, not... I kind of is it is your question sort of around the narrative process, like how narrative it is? And like I guess. But there's a difference because between. That's... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. There's a difference uh, between. Well, there's a difference between when you're composing for someone else, like someone else's project, for instance, the um, this documentary, and or your own story, like you're you want to like your project one where you have this idea you're telling it yourself that's like a different process to some degree for sure yeah absolutely um yeah it's different like when i work with dance companies um that's a different process too because i'm creating work for them Uh, especially with david herrera that was even that was even a little unusual it was more like a film score a lot of times what happens um not always uh and think less and less but um 
historically, I think a lot of composers would be given to, uh, for dance would be given sort of some parameters, a subject matter, an overall mood or theme. They would deliver it. The choreographer would choreograph to that. Okay. I think a lot of the great ballets though were more collaborative, like uh, Stravinsky um, mm -hmm. was incredibly collaborative um, with with the, the choreographers he worked with. Um, but but anyway, my, my point is um, a lot of times it, it was very like you are choreographing to the music. Um, in the case with my recent collaboration with David, he actually had choreographed a lot of the work and I was looking at footage of the rehearsals. Um, okay. And so I was I was kind of like I was film scoring to the dance. Um, now mm -hmm. I was having a little bit of flexibility, you know, if I was like, it wasn't beat by beat, um, like, I, you know, I had to hit that jump or whatever, but generally I, I could see the arc of it. I knew that, you know, about five minutes in, this is a moment. So I, I sort of, there was a framework there uh, that I needed to work within. Um, and then if I needed to go back to him and say, hey, I, I really need like five more seconds here to develop this musical idea, then he would shift things a little bit, but it was more him giving me um, a structure. And I'm not gonna say a story because it wasn't like traditionally narrative. It was a little more abstract than that, but it was um, a structure and a concept and con content. Um, yeah, but that's very different than when you're just totally on your own. Um, you maybe all you have is an instrumentation and a time uh, parameter, and then the rest is kind of up to you. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a different process. I can't necessarily say it's harder or easier. Sometimes the constraints actually really help you, um, and then sometimes they're really annoying. So. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, I really need more time to do this one thing or whatever. But, you know, so that it's annoying sometimes, but often constraints actually make you better, uh, make you more creative. Um, right. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but. <laughs> I think so. Pushing, pushing yourself within parameters, it, it can be a challenge. I get that. Yeah. Like with the recycled designs I've done where. I had to make a dress out of a paper that didn't do well, you know, or there was, I worked with one medium where it did not, nothing, no glue would stick to the, <laughs> to this. So there, there were things that I could not, I had to find a way to work around. So I, I get it with yeah. my background. Um, Trey, I'm sorry. I felt like you were about to ask something. So I wanted to. You're Otherwise, good. I've got I've got all kinds of other <laughs> questions. <laughs> I, I thought of them. <laughs> um, I think it'll. I think it's a nice transition for this particular question, um, kind of along that same line of like fabric and sewing and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. With other artistic mediums, um, the ability to like go back and edit things may not always be so easy. Um, and this is from a very biased perspective, so I apologize, please correct me. Um, whenever you're going through music, how do you decide kind of what stays, what goes, and how quickly does that process, like your editing process or your, mm, no, I don't like that, let me go back to this, 
what does that look like and what does that timeline sort of look like? Um, honestly, it depends on how much time I have for the deadline. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that informs all. <laughs> um, honestly, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's just some, some realities there. Um, in terms of like how I make decisions, it's very um, intuitive. Uh, uh, I mean, I feel like that is the one of the things that's probably hardest to, to teach. Um, mm -hmm. which is you, you can teach theory, um, you, you teach all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, it's the composer's job to know in their gut, um, is this good or is this not? And so at every, at every step of the process, um, you know, I usually joke that it's like, no, no, no no yes and you know and it's i don't know how we get to yes it's just me trying out new things okay no i don't like that what if we try this no i don't like that what if we try this eh, maybe it's getting better you know and then finally you just literally feel it um in your body in your gut whatever you want to call it um and you know it's a yes you know it's working um and um yeah i mean you know i wish there was a, a more um, precise way to, you know, describe that, but it's a feeling. Um, does this strike joy? <laughs> we get it. Oh. We do. It, mm -hmm. Like we interviewed and, and Ming Tsai, who's a chef, and he talked about the perfect bite, which is all of the combinations of of flavor and texture and temperature and all of the, the whole experience is that sweet spot perfect bite and the same is with photography the same is with m many art forms so i we get it yeah this the sweet spot of creating have you ever had a moment where you've been composing and you are just on fire and you just like yes <laughs> like have you ever like exclaimed to yourself just yes <laughs> And if so, yes. where were you? <laughs> yes, but there was a lot more cursing before we got there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that does happen, but usually it's also a lot of other exclamations. Um, and then some days you have, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely been moments where I feel like, okay, like we're getting a lot done today. This feels really right. Like everything's clicking. Um, love those days. And you have to cherish them because uh, they balance out the other days where you just feel like you're beating your head against the wall. Mm -hmm. How do you fuel that then? Like, how do you inspire yourself to to stay creative and to keep that level of creativity where it needs to be to continue? Yeah, that's a good question. And honestly, something I'm kind of grappling with now, I think I was not to get terribly personally personal, but um, yeah. I think so long I was fueled by adrenaline and anxiety. Like, oh, I have this deadline coming up. Oh, what if I'm not good enough? And so that drive was very effective yeah. and things would get done, mm -hmm. you know? And now I'm trying to find, can't say we're there yet. I'm trying to find a better, you know, you can do that in your twenties. And then <laughs> that doesn't last forever. You start burning yourself out. You start treating yourself really poorly. Yeah. Um, and that does not work. Um, and so now I'm trying to find, I don't have the answers yet, but I'm trying to find a better balance of how do we fuel ourselves? Like we still need the fire. We still have to get things done. 
but mm-hmm. um, fuel it uh, in a healthier way. Um, certainly means more sleep. Um, it means going to other people's shows and um, giving yourself the space. I think, you know, when you're when have a deadline or where you're really anxious, of course you go to the piano or you go to the workstation because you know you have to get it done. Uh, without that anxiety, you still have to, you still need to create the space uh, yeah. for yourself. Okay, these two hours, I'm going to work on X, Y, Z, um, you know, so working on it. <laughs> I think that's a work in progress for any artist in any field at any stage too, because like you said, it doesn't work in your 20s, but even like maybe in your 40s, then it changes and it doesn't work how it worked in your 30s or and so on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, then maybe it's not more sleep, it's, it's getting out to various other things more or whatever. I think everybody's constantly evolving and changing and figuring that out what works for them. And at that point, so relatable as well. Yeah. Yeah. But, But also having the courage to at least vocalize that. I think is an incredible amount of courage Um, and it shows how much you care about your work to to want to keep making it better instead of just doing the same thing over and over again. So I think that speaks to your creative process. And so I commend you for that. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I think taking the steps to avoid burnout and and being introspective and trying to figure that out for yourself shows a maturity and I think that's awesome. And I'm actually really proud of you for for doing that because a lot of people just let themselves burn out or that gets ahead of them and they can't catch up and it, you know, crashing and burning isn't pleasant. (laughs) So go you. Thank you. Well, we're trying. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say, Trey, what do you do? (laughs) <laughs> cry hide in a corner <laughs> hide in a corner we um, do that too yeah some days. <laughs> lots of cursing <laughs> lots of cursing um in my head internally scream um it really depends on the day um for me i'm going to be very honest that if i am in front of other people in those types of moments where i am so frustrated it's this unconscious filter that just kind of comes up, but I my tone gets a little bit more pointed. Um, I'm a little like bristly. And then if you get me in a closed room talking to other people, my initial reaction is just, I need to get it all out. And then I beat, my next thought is, okay, what do we do to make the situation better? How do we move forward? because I can't let myself continue to surf the thoughts of negativity. At some point, the surfing has to end and we have to come back to land and face what's what's there. So for me, it's that initial rush of emotion. We get back, we focus on what the path forward is so that we can get to a much better conclusion. So Does that provide clarity? Like, yeah. Not to shrink you, but... <laughs> <laughs> It, it sounds like you're an external processor. Like, uh, are you an extrovert? Um, like you like to talk things through out loud? I am an introvert. Okay. Just through and through. <laughs> but but do, you, um, or do you like to like talk things out even w- with yourself? Like journal it out or 
or even talk to yourself. I talk to myself sometimes. <laughs> oh God, I don't stop talking to myself. It is just <laughs> utterly annoying. It is. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> uh, it does. It's difficult, honestly, to write things down for me. Um, if I'm forced to do it, I can. But more than anything, it's the flow of ideas that really helps me with the process. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I find journaling feels cumbersome to me. So I do the talking thing, too. I can relate to that. What about you? Do you journal then? Or what do you, what do, you do, Riley? A little bit of everything. Um, I, I journal. I, actually, I joke. Um, I only journal when I'm either, like, for an artistic project. Um, and so, and the notes will make, like, no sense at all to anyone. <laughs> um other than me and even then sometimes they don't make sense but um like if someone read it it'd be like what what is going on <laughs> there'd be scribbles and yeah anyway um and, and then personally um yeah also journal if i'm upset or need to work through something so if you read the journals you'd be like this is a very upset person because that's all <laughs> you know you don't you don't necessarily get the happy days or the whatever days um but uh but yeah that, that helps me um yeah both personally and and creatively, I, I do like to sketch. So it's usually at the at the front end. Um, you know, when I'm first coming up with a concept, I want to like write out. I kind of want to like visualize the whole structure, the whole um, meaning of something, and like what I'm what I'm trying to get at. And I do find that that helps me. Um, and often, I you know the end product ends up being something different, but um, just the, that process helps me. Sure to get it out yeah that makes sense and emily what do you do well like i said i, I i'm a talker i'll i usually have to talk through problems i do talk to myself a lot talk to josh a lot he gets an earful that's great uh for him i'm sure <laughs> um yeah he just said can confirm <laughs> um yeah, I work things out verbally for sure. And because when I have journaled, this is what happens. And I'm embarrassed to say this a little bit, but it's true. And I think it may be for someone it's relatable. I've kept a journal. In fact, I still have the journal from when I was like 11. And I journaled quite a bit then. And I was really surprised when I went back and looked like, wow, I was kind of prolific at this. But it's the most, Im I mean, it was 11. Okay. But even now, like as an adult, I'll look back at like what I maybe wrote down a few years ago and go, gosh, that is the most immature, ridiculous, <laughs> like cheesy. What? Like, I'm. that's not me, but maybe I just needed to get it out there. So like, and that going back and reading it kind of has stopped me maybe maybe i shouldn't be quite so afraid of you just have a little more compassion <laughs> yeah for myself right <laughs> like <laughs> like i'm gonna look back at this and think it's ridiculous so why write it down which isn't really the point so i get it yeah no you yeah the point is not having a filter so so at least i'm getting the immaturity out there <laughs> and not maybe Great. at everyone Great. else <laughs> Well, this has been helpful. Thank you. And that's, and that's, <laughs> Thank you. that's why we sketch things as as an artist. That's why I don't understand how people improvise. Um, I mean, like I, I, I improvise on my own and sketch things out on my own. Um, but that's the whole point. I'm on my own. <laughs> um, so like there's a freedom there. 
um, personally, artistically, that I, that you can just get out all the bad ideas um, and then find that nugget. Um, the you know people who improvise, um, you know, speaking artistically, people who improvise. I'm just so impressed by that. I mean, yes, they practice as well a lot. That's mm -hmm. a skill, but it's just a, it is a totally different skill because you know people make that connection think oh you should just jam out and i'm like no that is not my skill um <laughs> we're gonna go over the same phrase 20 times 20 slight different different uh uh variations uh and then we're gonna choose the right one and that's not fun to listen to for anybody else I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but you should just jam out <laughs> <laughs> Um, Kaz in our uh, chat said this became a therapy session and yes it did but also music is therapy in its own way art is therapy so um, I really enjoy that yeah it's therapeutic when you're not cursing at fabric for why are you jamming my sewing machine <laughs> <laughs> no haven't had that happen in the last week or so mm-mm <laughs> or when Sibelius completely crashed and I lost everything. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. Like permanently, that's it? Uh, just on one piece. Okay, um, still. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. The days before autosave. <laughs> oh, and now I use Dorco, which also has its problems, but it's a slightly, but slightly better. Yikes, yeah. Kaz said, knock on wood right now, Trey. Do not jinx yourself. <laughs> that, that is me knocking wood. That's a good question. Do you have any superstitions or anything like that when it comes to composing or performing or anything like that? No, I'm not really a superstitious person. Um, I'd say rituals are helpful. Um, like, you know, have your things that work for you, but I don't like, I don't like, think they have any magical properties right <laughs> um like i like to drink coconut water if i'm performing coconut water banana uh, potassium electrolytes um helps with like muscle relaxation and um i usually try to meditate just a little bit um try to calm myself down uh before a performance um yeah i'm just gonna be self-care kind of things um, but, but no, I'm not really superstitious, um, about anything really. Um, uh, and pretty, pretty practical. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm not, I'm not terribly, uh, in some senses, I'm not terribly romantic. I'm pretty practical. <laughs> um, you know, I like things to come from feeling, but, uh, be balanced with structure and pragmatism and. Sure. Yeah. That's valid for sure. I don't think I have any superstitions either. Other than the right sides together thing. And I just, I do, I don't know if I need to tell that story. Do you know the story of right sides together, Trey? No, but if it's related to sewing, yes, I have sewn the wrong sides together yeah. quite a bit. So there's this thing in sewing where when you're sewing a seam, like if this is the right side of the fabric and you're going to sew these two pieces of fabric together, you would sew them like this, right sides together. You sew your seam down the edge. So when you fold it back open, they're sewn together. And the right sides are facing the correct side. So everything turns out 
So the right side is on the exterior, the, the printed side, so to speak. And so the saying goes right sides together. It's in the instructions for patterns. It's in all the sewing books and everywhere right sides together. There's a few times when you don't do that, but it's more common to, to do it. And so um, when I would sew really late into the night in my 20s and I would be really tired at 3 a.m. trying to continue sewing without making mistakes, I had made up the rights you constantly kind of mantra right sides together so you don't continue to mess up because once you start making mistakes you just have to go to bed like it's, you're done so to, to keep things from happening i would constantly go right sides together until it became kind of a curse <laughs> because what would happen is i would have other friends over sometimes and we'd be sewing and then someone would say it to remind you to kind of keep keep that like hey don't mess it up because then we have to quit. <laughs> so it was, hey, everyone, right sides together. And then it turned into this thing where every time someone said it, someone would mess up like immediately after. And we're like, we need to stop doing this. So we learned to not say it. So we, which became the opposite of, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if that's really accurate or not, but it came, became a joke. And so, yeah. That's Maybe that's um, just a sign of like anxiety. Um, you know, when you like you said by saying it too much, um, you know, you're sort of psyching yourself out. Yeah. In the end, we're all overtired and should have gone to bed an hour ago. And yeah, or that. Yeah. yeah that, <laughs> right. That's probably it. Yeah. Most of us, yeah. <laughs> but it was still fun to, to refer to it as the right sides together curse. Cause, oh, and that was the other thing is if you if you said right sides together at any point throughout the day, if you said it out loud. That was it. You can't sew the rest of the day because you'll just mess things up. And so <laughs> I'm sorry, Trey, if you had any plans on sewing later today. They are ruined. <laughs> well, you know, there is that thing as like con crunch where you have to like continue sewing just endlessly. Uh, <laughs> so I was going to sew until 4 a.m. But oh, dang, snap those plans. I mean, I don't really believe in it, but it was kind of a fun concept. We played with it. Uh, for me, it's uh, oddly like saying the Scottish play. Like I've gotten in the habit of saying the Scottish play um, now that I will not refer to it. Really? Um, you won't just seriously. say the name? No, I won't say the name. I'll okay. just call it the Scottish play. The play it's that been in... may not be named. Must not Is it like your Macbeth or something? Oh, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, he did it. <laughs> Uh, I'm so happy uh, you just said it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's it's one of those things. Of, uh, there have been people that have that I've met that have had legitimate stories about the Scottish play being said backstage, and then something immediately follows that. Um, so it's a little bit superstition and a little bit like you. Everybody at like seven years old will go into their mirror and say things like Bloody Mary into the mirror until they get to the very last iteration of that phrase and then not actually go through with it. And you always find yourself questioning, if I do this, is this actually going to happen? So it's it's one of those sorts of things of, if I actually say it, what is going to be on the other side of me saying that? Let's find out. <laughs> no. <laughs> Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> We're not in the theater. I think it's fine. Yeah. Speak for yourself. I'm always on the stage. <laughs>
Oh my gosh, Emily, I cannot believe this incredible chocolate we've been tasting. Oh, we had to bring Eric and Jalisa from Storyboard Delights back to discuss. Absolutely we did. What is it about your chocolate that makes it so magical? Ooh, it's magical because we infuse so much fun in our chocolate. It's not something serious, but it is a serious experience. We make sculpted chocolate bars that have stories to tell, like, for instance, our Red Riding Hood bar. Oh, the Red Riding Hood bar is super fun. First, we start with the digital painting on the front, and it tells the first part of the story of Red Riding Hood walking into the woods. And then when you unwrap it, you have this sculpted bar of Big Bad Wolf sitting in Granny's bed. And then you taste it, and the flavor profile wraps up the rest of the story. And so you first, when you bite into it, you taste the earthiness of the chocolate, which is the hunting grounds of the Big Bad Wolf. And then you've got the Pasilla chili pepper, which provides sort of the prowl. It's kind of spicy, not quite, but then the guajillo bites you at the end, just like the Big Bad Wolf. You can find us at www.storyboarddelights.com Pick out whichever chocolate you want, whichever story you want, and we will ship it right to your door. Fantastic. I'm going to storyboarddelights.com right now. Is there a saying, like, they say when you're going to go on stage like for acting or for theater it's break a leg right is there anything i'm sorry married for ballet okay which is i don't know if we're allowed to curse on this yeah it's uh, french for poop (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but the stronger version of poop (laughs) yes you can say it it doesn't matter um but yeah uh i kind of use that one just for fun so i actually used to work with uh Cause I don't like break a leg for whatever reason. I feel like it's kind of cheesy, overused, uh, also kind of violent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and painful. So I don't like that one. So I, I use Merit, um, almost instinctively. And then people who don't come from a dance background or don't know me kind of like, what? <laughs> um, or if they I don't just come from know a dance French. background, <laughs> but, uh, or that. Yeah. Uh, which also would, would still get the same reaction. What? Um, but yeah, I, I never, I'm not a dancer, um, but I, uh, in administration, I've worked for a couple dance companies and sort of have many friends in that world. So, so yeah, I've adopted Mared. I like it. Mared. Welcome to the Modern Mared podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Where we are off our rockers. <laughs> yeah. Macbeth. Oh, God. I'm going to wear it out. It's not going to have any you... effect on you anymore at all. <laughs> all right. So, Niner Diatribe, you and Seth are on this kick of saying words that I don't like. Oh. Um, he, uh, he is all about the... Um, you know, we'll have that conversation another time. Um, okay. No. <laughs> um, I'm with you, Seth. I got them. I got the memo. <laughs> Oh, geez. Um, so, Riley, um, speaking like about compositions and things, um, I have always been curious. Um, like, you have been writing now, when we went back, I think one of your earliest works was from 2009, at least that was available on your website. And you now have the pieces that are coming out in 2024. That is you are approaching two almost two decades worth of writing content. Um, I, so, I didn't even realize that. <laughs> Look at so, you go. 
there is so much that you have accomplished. Um, do you ever want to go back to previous works and like edit things, or are you of the stance of once it's done, it's just done? Um, I don't know. Yes and no. I, I sort of have an interesting relationship with that. I mean, really, it boils down to time. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, yeah. Um, I mean, there are probably some pieces back from undergrad that if I had all the time in the world, it might be really like there are nuggets of them that I think were really interesting that I'd love to make less student-y. <laughs> um, okay. But, you know, nobody's really commissioning me to do that. Um, there's a lot of competing priorities. So, so usually you just have to, um, you know, let dead things lie there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there have been, there has been an occasion where, um, so I guess the best example of this, uh, I wrote a string quartet for, uh, Amaranth quartet. Uh, mm-hmm. they commissioned me actually the sort of long relationship with them. So I wrote them a string tree. They were down one member and I wrote them a string trio. Um, and then I turned that into a string quartet and then, um, and then I wrote, it wasn't a second movement, but it was sort of a sequel to that. It was the original piece was Bend, and then I wrote a piece called Break for them. So they commissioned me to write that. Um, um, I was very happy with it. Well, I wasn't really happy with it there, you know, after hearing it, and it wasn't their fault. Uh, not, uh, it was more me. I realized there was a whole section in it that I inserted that was really interesting content to me that had no place in the piece. Um, and so, um, I took it out, um, like it was a 15 minute piece. Um, and after the premiere, I created a version that was more like an old 10, 11 minute piece. And, um, it was sort of a blow to the ego a little bit, uh, because Mm. it's like, there's all this content. And I was like, this just doesn't fit. Um, and it's not bad content. It was really hard. Um, so it was sort of not terribly idiomatic, but the the concept was really interesting, but it just didn't work. And so I took it out. Um, and now, now, you know, I won't, I won't let anybody play the old version because it's, it's, um, it's just a better piece without it. So, sure. so that was one cha- one case where I really did make an edit. Um, there are other pieces again, like I would like, if time allowed, I'd like to go back, but, Time doesn't always allow. And also sometimes it's really hard, especially if for larger pieces, if you have a copyist, um, mm-hmm. you pay a copyist to create the score in parts. So you might, depending on what your arrangement with and how in-depth the edits are, um, you might have to pay the copyist again. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes these things are, are difficult to, to edit. Um, yeah, for time and resources, um, but yeah. Um, unfortunately, there aren't home runs every time. Right. Well, self-editing is a whole nother, like, thing, you know, where you're having to self-audit and edit. And I feel like that's just be able to step back and look at it through different eyes when you've been the one that's been the closest to it this whole time is really a challenge. And that's sometimes. usually the problem, that you've been too yeah. close to it. For um, sure. That was actually, I mentioned earlier that I was listening to one of my pieces for dance company 
earlier. And that was actually specifically because um, I'm trying to decide, um, I'm, I'm considering releasing it as an album on its own, just the music. Yeah. But, but I'm like, does this work uh, without, the, without the dance? Um, and so I, I think I've done this before and basically I've released a truncated version and I took out some stuff that worked really well when there were dancers, but I feel like without the dancers, like it doesn't stand on its own. Um, so, so there's that too. Sometimes like you have to adapt things for different mediums. So for the case of an album, I think I need to make it a little briefer. Understandable. What, what is your advice to someone who maybe wants to do what you do composing let's say mm-hmm. like what is your advice to someone who wants to get into that maybe they've dabbled or or not they just really love the idea yeah um well from a sort of pedagogical standpoint compose just like keep doing it um and the more the more experience you you get the, the better i mean you get better with every piece and you learn something new with every piece assuming that you're really pushing yourself and not just you know um but you're really trying to push your own boundaries um and then on the more like pragmatic standpoint i'd say you, you have to realize that the music industry um there are music there are many paths and it is really difficult to make a living composing by really difficult i mean astronomically difficult like you can if you consider the amount of composers um and this is not to be discouraging i promise i have have a a point at the end of this but if you consider like the, the the amount of composers that are actually only making a living by composing the number is incredibly incredibly few uh most of them are teaching or have another job or maybe also perform or do some, you know, like there are many paths. And so that's the, that's the positive side of this. The, you know, most people as students, uh, I thought this too, if you, if you would have said that I, you know, my day job, so to speak, would be uh, in arts management, um, you know, I'd be like, what's that? Like, what, <laughs> you know, there, there's, you know, you can be a sound engineer you can be uh, a PR, music PR, you could be a publicist, um, you could be an arts administrator, um, you can be like, there are so many paths to be in the world when you can do your work as well. Um, um, that it's, you know, that's wonderful. And most people just don't, most students don't really realize that. Um, so um, yeah, and you kind of, and honestly, you have, you have to really do that unless you come from a lot of privilege. Um, you know, you really have to, to consider what what are the different paths that I can take to support myself um, to make it work. And and I find and, and there's you know, there's also the path of have a completely unrelated career and compose as well. I know some great, great composers who do that. Um, that doesn't work for me. I really like being in it all the time, even if I'm not composing. That's you know, because that's but that's my path. So right. there are many paths is the point. Sure. <laughs> And I wish that more people in who are teachers would talk about those opportunities to be more involved in an arts organization, to do more things that are related to the interest. That's my one impassioned plea to any music educators who are out there. Please talk to your students about the the opportunities around music. 
Um, it's not only from my perspective, a way to make yourself more long-term successful. It's also something to be very supportive of other people and help navigate their careers as well as your own. Um, earlier in the podcast, we say it takes a village and I think a village can start with a couple people and eventually it'll grow too many. Um, hi, I'm Trey. I'm getting off my soapbox now. Thank you. <laughs> No, that's a good soapbox to be on. And you're right. I mean, yeah. I think it's changing a little bit, but um, for a long time, um, you know, if you're a cellist, if you went to conservatory, especially if you went to like a conservatory um, and not like a liberal arts org, um, you, they teach you how to play the cello really well. And that's their job. Um, mm -hmm. And then they graduate. Um, I would see this all the time at the Center for New Music where, where I used to work. It's a small venue um in san francisco and there'd be these incredible artists and i would be and sometimes really successful too um, or at least by some metrics like they won awards or like the artists that they collaborate whatever and then like they don't know how to find their light they don't know how to send me a high rate high res image like they don't have a headshot like like they, they, they the conservatories don't always teach the music industry even in some like really basic surprising ways. Yeah. And that's really important. Um, your artistry is incredibly important too, but uh, there's, a, there's a whole, the, the whole package is needed. What is something that if their particular institution doesn't do something like that, what would you recommend that do, are there any resources that you recommend or any particular places of interest that you would at least start someone at? Yeah, I mean, I would say start your own ensemble, like try your own startup, so to speak. Um, that's kind of what I was getting at with, um, you know, why I mentioned that I self-produced the string orchestra, the one piece, because that mm -hmm. was so informative because I learned about how to fundraise. I learned about, you know, how to put together marketing materials, like have a like dive into a project if you're not a composer if you're a musician start an ensemble or start a band like just you know try your hand at at, at, at starting some at starting something i think that's that's the way i think especially i would see the people who struggle the most often are have like been you know again like i'm being a little stereotypical here but like they've gone to these these schools and they've been placed in ensembles and they've been given these really specific incredible opportunities but they don't have agency over their own product um, mm -hmm. and they don't have any um, practice with self-producing anything um, mm -hmm. I think you learn so much by kind of going out on your own and starting something um, yeah one question that's in the chat is what or who is in your most listened to play playlist hmm um let's see i've been listening to um jacob cooper jacob cooper um his one of his recent albums that came out i think two years ago i've been listening to um sun um or sunrise something about sun again i really have been listening to this but i never think about the name sure um that's been um i also listen to uh when i work out sort of like um electronic music um not like necessarily house but sort of um i really like um arca um and um sort of experimental electronic artist like that um 
let's see, um, you know, Philip Glass, Steve Reich are some favorites, um, sort of some go-tos. Um, and so what have I, yeah, I, I kind of don't put music on in the background too much. Um, I'm kind of one of those people like, other than when I'm working out, like I'm very like intent listening um, kind of person or silence, which is unbearable yeah. for some people I know, but. <laughs> well, your world is full of music anyway. So it makes yeah. sense that you, the offset to that would be silence and not yeah. needing something to fill that. Um, sure. I just, um, we had just attended the Cabrillo Festival. Um, so I'll, I'll be leading it um, this upcoming year. Um, and some of my favorites there were uh, Peter Shin. Um, he, uh, he had a piece called Relapse. Um, Kevin Putz had Concerto for Orchestra. I think that's about to be recorded um, and released. Um, and then Anna Klein had a new premiere as well. Um, and that was that was really beautiful as well. So those are some of my favorites live recently. Awesome. What's something on your playlist that people would not expect you to have? <laughs> that's good is it baby got it back <laughs> <laughs> i did i mean i don't know if it's terrible i feel like everybody loves beyonce but um not people wouldn't necessarily expect it from me but i love beyonce's renaissance um although i would say i kind of burned myself out on it i listened to it too much and now i'm giving myself a break but that was on heavy rotation for a while <laughs> okay. okay yeah awesome any any plans to go see the bee, Queen Bee? You know, I'm. Um, it seems like an ordeal. I think I, I don't have enough stamina to like wait in line for five hours, and um, I don't know. It seems like a whole thing. I, I don't blame you. Uh, oh, another yes. one that I listen to a ton. Um, uh, Tim Hecker. Um, he's one of my all-time favorites. He's sort of experimental ambient electronic music so it's not okay. like electronic music typically doesn't have a beat um it's more abstract um more atmospheric um yeah uh, one of my i listened to that last night his his newest album is um again anyway he has a new album out that's wonderful <laughs> <laughs> just go look up the new album everyone <laughs> yeah uh two questions that I have necessarily. Uh, my first is um, that I'm sure as a composer that you've received a lot of feedback uh, regarding your work, whether it be whatever medium you're composing for or another piece that you've worked on. Um, how do you decide between feedback you're going to listen to and when you're going to politely tell someone to go take a long walk off a short cliff? <laughs> I rarely do the latter. Um, uh, this is a, yeah, my mother says, um, you can always take advice, but you don't have to heed it. <laughs> you know, you can, or you, know, you can basically, you can listen to it. Like I'm always happy to hear, unless it's just vitriolic. I mean, you know, but, um, but I'm always happy to hear people's thoughts, you know, and then I'll decide whether or not to take it to heart or not. Um, you know, it's, I, I'm trying to think, I, I do try to, again, unless it just is like from someone who I don't really respect or if it's 
clearly vitriolic and they're just trying to be mean, which is rare. Um, I, I try to, I wouldn't say take it to heart, but I try to think about it, you know, like, and I'll think about mm -hmm. it over and sort of evaluate it. Does this make sense or not? Um, and then come to a conclusion. So I try to consider everything. I, I, I don't want to be above reproach uh, because then you just get stuck in a rut. Um, mm -hmm. I know I could be better, um, you know, um, or maybe it's not even a, a better or worse, but it's in that maybe it could lead to a new idea. So I'm very much a sort of, I process things. I don't make immediate judgments really on anything. Um, mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, let me think about that and sleep on it. Uh, sure. And then, you know, and then give it some consideration and then make a call um, and try not to take things too personally. That's a good open-minded. Sorry. <laughs> no, you were saying exactly what I was about to. That's very open-minded and very realistic. It keeps a very square head on your shoulders. So, yeah. Although, honestly, I wish people, I mean, I feel like that's a real, we have a directness problem uh, in our art form, in our society. Uh, not to get too philosophical, but like, we're really afraid to say what we think. Now, I'm mm -hmm. not saying be an a-hole, <laughs> like do things <laughs> with kindness, but like, I would love to actually know sort of what people think uh, more than they actually tell me you know, mm -hmm. just in mm -hmm. life. Like, I feel like we're all so guarded, um, like do things in a kind way, but like, I, I'd like to know where I stand. Like, I feel like we could learn so much more. Yeah, music criticism is like that too. Like, um, like I, I, you rarely see like, I mean, A, there aren't enough music critics out there. So that's, that's a big issue, but often it's not always, and not with everybody, but often it's just fluffy. Um, and I'm like, I'd really actually like to know what you thought. Um, I don't want a play-by-play. -play. I don't want oh, uh, effusive, it was great. You know, like, let me know what you actually thought. Um, mm -hmm. Again, don't be mean for the sake of being mean. Like, right. it should be well thought out um, and kind. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I feel like that's, that's kind of a real problem, right? Um, and, and we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot by not being direct uh, and clear. And I think that's compounded by being difficult, being an art, for yeah. instance, like, um, it's like, uh, I've entered photography contests before. And unless you know what the judges are looking for or what they're, what they like to see, you don't know who your audience is that's judging. So right. what, what could be a winning image to one judge is a win is not to another. And so I could see where coming from like a that standpoint it's difficult to say because maybe it's just not for me but you know then you have I mean, maybe that's not fair because you also have movie critics who can accurately critique a movie without saying oh this just wasn't you know they can understand this just wasn't for me but overall as a quality piece maybe yeah i didn't explore that enough before i opened my mouth but no, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the job of a critic. They should be able to transcend their own taste yeah. and, and have like, an, and if they actually thought something was wrong with it or right with it, You're like, right. there's been, and that's a really hard skill. Like, I feel like I'm only just kind of now just getting there where some pieces like, I really didn't like that, but it was really well structured and really mm -hmm. well put together, you know, mm -hmm. and like, you know, kind of, that's really hard. And I sometimes can do it and sometimes you can't. <laughs> Um, you know, but, but, but yeah, like that, that's, a, that's definitely a skill. 
to appreciate it for what it is outside of right. opinion. Yeah. Even if you know, like, yeah, I didn't really enjoy it. Like, um, I'm not going to give an example because I don't <laughs> don't want to burn any bridges. But, right, of course. You know, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, like definitely there's been things I've heard recently. It's like, I, it's so not me. That's so not something I would listen to. It didn't really move me emotionally, but I thought it was really well put together. The audience really liked it. The musicians really liked it. You know, like it was so well orchestrated, you know, it, like you, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, things like that the the show that comes to mind um that's been kind of on my tiktok feed yes i know it's vice um has been once upon a one more time where the britney spears jukebox musical um audiences have really enjoyed it it's kind of an interesting take there are issues that some people have taken with the show but they're easily kind of like you know what it for the sake of the plot it makes sense um, with a little bit more workshopping might be better, but overall really fun show. They make it an experience, et cetera, et cetera. They're sad to see that it's closing on Broadway now, but um, the critics kind of lambasted it. The audience love it, um, but mostly the, uh, they were lambasted because it was just like, I don't like this. And that's all that appeared in the New York Times. So um, mostly just to kind of support your point to say, it may not be your your point, but as a critic, rise rise to the occasion and deliver to your audience a more well thought out explanation, versus just your um, terrible opinion. Right. Yeah, and bad reviews. Uh, bad bad reviews are usually that because like those are the worst, and that's why it's it's hard to write a bad review well, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like. I have an example, but again, I'm not going to put it out there. Um, but like, yeah, there's a bad review that I that I read recently. Um, you know, like you have, like, if you, if you're going to have a negative opinion, like, be accurate in what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, and and like, it, it needs to make sense, and it needs to be really well thought out. It can't just be like that was terrible. Uh, it can't just be like spiteful you know like you need to really have some have a have have well-reasoned thought behind it uh, and make a convincing argument that's the key right there you have to be able to provide why mm-hmm. right yeah and and also like really understand the context like you were saying um trey like the context in which this is happening um you can't complain about something that's not the performers or composers or whatever's fault. Um, you know, like you have, when you, you have to be really careful about that too. Um, you know, those are all individual choices that contribute to the total art form. And so it's a very clear delineation between, is it the, the issue with the performer, the issue with the, the composition work by itself or a third party that is escaping my mind at the moment, but we'll kind of go with that. Um, yeah, yeah th- that, that's one thing that kind of switching gears, that's one thing that not a lot of people realize is so people, especially with new music, um, contemporary music in the classical world, um, people might hear it and often they blame the composer uh, mm-hmm. if they don't like it. Mm-hmm. And um, well, often new music is hard and so not, not always, uh, but sometimes it wasn't a good performance. Maybe that was it. Or maybe it's a great performer, a great composer, 
but the organization didn't give enough rehearsal time. Uh, that happens a lot because often masterworks are centered um, at every level of institutions. And then they're like, and we'll do this five minute new music piece and we'll rehearse it once or twice, it'll be fine. N no, <laughs> that's uh, but that happens all the time. And then audiences think, I don't like new music. I don't like this composer. Well, they weren't given the proper space to let that blossom. Um, so like all of these things, even, you know, time, resources, good performers, good composer, the marketing, like the, the way in which it's presented, like so many things go into that experience. Um, and that it's, that's really hard for composers uh, because they have, they often have such little control over that. They have control over what's in the score and often so little control over everything else. Sure. Honestly, that's why like Philip Glass had his own ensemble um, kind of goes back to like the start your own band, start your own project. That's really useful in so many ways. And a lot of composers and musicians have chosen to do just that because they realize I need the creative control to actually make this what I what I know it needs to be. Um, and that that's one thing that's really hard is when you're at the mercy of a different producer and they hope they hope you, you hope they do your your music justice well and you have no idea and no control yeah it's, it's tough mm. i'm sure it's similar with writers too with you know screenplays and things like that where it's out of their hands once it's purchased by whatever studio to some degree at least that's kind of what like I, I we interviewed tom blomquist for instance who did a lot of tv shows that are recognizable in America and it sounds it sounded like as a writer like he had the most control as an executive producer for instance but as a writer sometimes it was like they're gonna do with it what they're gonna do with it and you kind of had to let that go and he talked about yeah. some of that as well yeah that so. baffles me <laughs> <laughs> the idea that they just kind of like at least with the score that you don't deviate from the notes Oh, right. You know, like that's a, that's a big no, no, but yeah, I know writers, they just really, I mean, I don't actually know, but my understanding is that unless they're executive producer or director or something like mm -hmm. they can, their script can kind of be shredded to bits. Um, that's, that's wild. Yeah. Well, and even the actor can say this line doesn't feel like my character. And then it goes back to the writers to rewrite it or they'll right. change it right there on the set. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah, I didn't think about that. Changing notes is not okay. Not as okay as changing like lines for a movie. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that will happen if it's a really nice collaborative experience with the ensemble. Sometimes you can do that in person okay. uh, and that's fine. Like, but it's very much if the composer blesses it, right? right. It's not like the music director is ever gonna be like, no, we're changing this. I mean, there are times, but it's usually usually inappropriate if they do that. Yeah, I would think it would be. Yeah. I have something, and I'll share it with you after the show. Um, there, there's another musical example from Broadway in a recent performance, and I will save that because I could go on forever about how much the sh uh, the show that I want to talk about is in my heart. My last question here um, that I want to ask is um, what, where is your creativity taking you now? What projects are you looking forward to uh, debuting in your, your upcoming schedule? 
Yeah. Um, so I just finished a violin quartet uh, for a friend. Um, and so we'll be, I gave her the first draft. Um, there'll probably be some slight revisions for that. I'm actually in an interesting phase. I'm not actively, I sort of am putting the bow on a couple of projects or, um, and then um, I, I finished an orchestra piece that I'm trying to figure out what life I wanted to have um, mm -hmm. and some edits and things that need to happen. Um, so I'm a little bit at ground zero um, on a, for, for completely new projects. I don't have any, uh, I had an interesting conversation with a friend that might go somewhere excuse me the other the, the other day but yeah uh orchestra piece a violin quartet um considering that that uh and then i'm considering releasing an album nobody hold it to me um of some previous works uh that are re-releases um and, and yeah i mean so i just so i just moved to santa cruz california oh. uh, as i mentioned for the cabrillo festival so i'm kind of in a transition both i guess literally uh you know location wise and my, my move cross country as well as artistically i'm kind of in a transition period figuring sure. out okay what's next um so definitely have some things on the burners but um also to be seen sure santa cruz is awesome i love santa cruz yeah i love it yeah if you ever look up um chaminade resort c-h-a-m I can't think of the rest. Chaminade. Anyway, yeah, I've stayed there several times and it is glorious. And the views are okay. awesome. And there's a Chaminade? Really cool... Chaminade. Yeah, I think you can just okay. probably go there for their food, which is also amazing. Um, C-H-A-M-I-N-A-D-E. Chaminade. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, oh, it's like... and apparently I'm writing a um, 60 trumpet fanfare for your castle raid. So. Oh, yes. Right. That's coming up, yeah. too. I'm glad you didn't forget, like we did. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, be expecting in... a commissioning agreement in my inbox. We'll, we'll get right with you. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have our people call your people. Right. Great. Great. Sandra will be in touch. <laughs> Perfect. Sorry, Sandra. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'm sure you will enjoy Santa Cruz. It is, yeah. it's I a love lovely it so town. Yeah. Well, Riley, I am so happy that you joined us here today. Um, this was incredible. I'm so glad you took an opportunity to, to speak with us and share your insight and your experience with being a composer um, and being a part-time therapist in your current role <laughs> as executive director. Um, it has really been a pleasure to have you on the show. Likewise, it's such a pleasure speaking with y'all. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, considering all the other guests you've had on here, it's, it's an honor. Thank you. Yeah, it's been wonderful to have you on. Um, before we go, um, we want to make sure that our audience is able to connect with you. Um, where are some places that our audience might be able to either see notifications of your upcoming work or be able to interact with you um, more um, personally? Yeah, um, so RileyNicholson.com is my website. Uh, it's mm -hmm. relatively up to date um, and has links to uh, Spotify, Apple Music, um, where I have several albums and EPs and singles out. Um, and uh, I think my socials are on there as well. Um, so 
yeah, I would love for people to check out my music and, and website and I will lead you to all kinds of places. Um, I do have a biased opinion. Please go listen to the first movement of one at least. Mm -hmm. That is incredible. Please go listen to it. Yes. Um, so definitely recommend that. Thank uh, you. But as we close this episode out, this episode, along with probably every other episode, forever and always, will be in memory of Joe Capone, our moderator, fellow comedian, passionate encourager, and greatly missed friend. Follow us pretty much wherever you tune into podcasts. For updates, announcements, and more, please follow us on social media under Modern Romantic. Thanks, everybody, and have a sonata-filled day. <laughs> Thank you. Have a great night. Thank you.